Welcome to Stories from the Park, a Heritage Park podcast. Hi, I'm Dominic Terry, Communications Manager. And I'm Kasaya Quill, Chief Curator here at Heritage Park. We are located on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta, a place where visitors come to learn about the history of all those who have gathered here and where Indigenous people proudly share cultural traditions and tell stories about their rich heritage, history, and attachment to the land. In this bonus episode, we're talking about Black history in Canada, and more specifically, sleeping car porters on the Canadian Railway from the 1870s through the 1960s. Our guest is Suzette Mayer, the Giller Prize-winning author of The Sleeping Car Porter, a fictionalized account of a Black man named Baxter and his trials and tribulations as a porter. Suzette, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear more about your book. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, So we were going to ask you a bit about um, the research for your book and um, if you could tell us a little bit about sleeping cars and their place in the story of the Canadian railway history, but also where you found your research and uh, that adventure that you went on for that. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um... I I have to confess that at the very beginning of my research and um, my thinking about writing this book, I had never heard of sleeping car porters at all. I'd never heard of them. So this was about 20 years ago when a friend of mine, um, Fred Waugh, who's a poet, uh, told me, you know, because he was a former instructor of mine, former creative writing teacher, he basically gave me an assignment and he said, write a book about the sleeping car porters. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I started doing research into it. And part of the reason why um, sleeping car porters were so important for Fred was that when he was, uh, I think, in his early teens in the 1950s, he was riding a train um, to a scout jamboree and he had his trumpet and there was a sleeping car porter on board who took out his trump his trombone and started jamming with Fred started jamming with the kids and this really struck Fred and and I and I think that is a great place to start when talking about this because sleeping car porters you know they were part of um passenger train history from the very beginning you know starting in the United States in the I think the late uh, 1800s maybe earlier um and then coming up into Canada that whole tradition of having black men as basically the service workers on the trains who attended to passengers every whim, you know, that was around for a long time. But the inherent contradiction in there is that they were, on one hand, hugely invisible. They were invisible unless they, you know, weren't doing their job properly. They were invisible, but at the same time, they were essential to um, making it work. And what was really striking for me when I was doing the research was understanding how important they were in terms of, you know, helping develop labor rights in Canada, especially for black people, because they're, they're the conditions under which they worked were just not very good. They had bad pay, they didn't get enough sleep, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and so they fought for better working conditions. Um, and because they were such a driven group of people, so not just the men, but also the communities around them, the people who supported them, um, you know, they also became a key part of, I would say, Canada's Black civil rights struggle as well, right? Where, you know, people like Stanley G. Grizzle was in, in instrumental in helping with workers' rights. You know, then there's also the arts like Oscar Peterson and Davy 
uh, uh, Daisy Peterson Sweeney, his sister. Um, so Oscar Peterson, the jazz pianist, his father, his father was their father was a sleeping car porter, you know, so um, what's really sad to me is that sleeping car porters aren't that well known or they aren't as well known as they should be even though they were pretty essential for helping develop a black middle class for you know for the arts for politics i think there's a senator i don't want to get his name wrong so i probably shouldn't say it i think his last name is ruck um who was a um who was a sleeping car porter as well so you know i could go on i could go on and on and on Uh, Suzette, where did they where did they come from? How did people um, I know that uh, in, they were a lot in the American uh, railway system. But when uh, the CPR expanded its sleeping car porter or sleeping car system in the late in the 1870s and 80s, where did they find these people to work on them? Yes. Yeah, so from what I can understand, uh, there were different groups of black, different kinds of black communities um, that were sort of the origins of the sleeping car porters or were the the origin. I guess they were the sources for the sleeping car porters. So there were, you know, say people from Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia loyalists. Um, so there were those men. Uh, in those communities, there were, you know, people who immigrated from Oklahoma and Texas to avoid that racism who came up to Alberta and Saskatchewan. So that was a community. There was also a community in Vancouver. And the group I'm talking about, at least the character in my book, he is, uh, so the CPR worked to actively recruit men from the Caribbean. And so, you know, for example, the Bahamas, uh, which is where my mother is from, you know, there were Bahamian um, people who came from the Bahamas who worked for the for the railway. So it's a really interesting spread of um, different different groups of black people, different communities that I originally didn't I didn't know about. I thought it was primarily probably, you know, um, people from Nova Scotia, maybe, you know, the people who lived in Amber Valley, but there are also Caribbean people in there as well. Wow. So that's a, a lot of uh, different people from all over the place coming to work. So um, what kind of conditions uh, were, were they finding once they started working for the CPR as porters? Part of the problem was they didn't get enough sleep. So they weren't given a berth or they weren't given a proper bed to sleep in. And because they were on call, they weren't supposed to be on call 24-7, but they basically were because you know, if a passenger, for example, you know, in the middle of the night wanted and they if a passenger was in an upper berth and wanted to get down, the porter would have to go with the ladder to help that passenger get down from their upper berth. And so that could happen throughout the night as well. Right. Um, and And so in terms of the sleeping arrangements, from what I can understand, they would, you know, be lucky if they got a. Um, uh, you know, a bench in the smoker car, maybe they'd get a mattress to put on there, but that was right next to the WC. So the bathroom door would be slamming back and forth. There would be all that, you know, that air pollution from all the smoking, the cigar smoke, et cetera, in there. So they didn't get enough sleep. Um, they were on call 24 seven. They were asked to do all kinds of things. They could be fired for no reason. I remember looking at some archives where, 
you know, one guy was disciplined because he stepped on the upholstery. One guy, I talked to a man who got fired because he accidentally spilled coffee on a passenger, but it was actually the passenger whose hands were shaking so hard from being hung over that that's why the, you know, the reason the coffee spilled, but that guy was fired. They also were given, uh, depending on whichever railway company you were dealing with, they were given a deal on the food that they could buy on board. So they, I don't know, they got maybe 50% off you know, whatever, for example, but the food was the bottom of the pots and it was not, I mean, it was not good. So often they would buy from lunch counters um, uh, at different stations, but, you know, and the same thing too, was that they, they had to rely a lot on tips in order to make up their, their wages. And the problem with tips, of course, is that that relies on the whims of the passengers. And once you hit you know, the 1930s, people don't have as much money anymore. So of course, their wages are going to go down. I remember reading, and I can't remember where it was, but it was, uh, I guess, somebody who was not a porter, you know, I think, I don't know who it was. Anyway, they discovered, they 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 worked for the company, but they discovered that porters were able to make, you know, enough money with tips to send their kids to school. And so once that was known by the company, uh, the company then decided, well, we'll cut the wages because the porters can make more money in tips. And red caps, you know, who didn't ride the trains but worked in the stations, you know, taking care of suitcases, et cetera, and luggage, I think they lived primarily on tips. So it was bad pay, bad sleep, bad food, you know, real precarity in terms of of the job itself. And then, the, of course, the racism, right? Because even in Canada the porters could end up with the nicknames of George or boy, you know, and George comes from the whole, um, because of George Pullman who established the passenger train system, this luxury passenger train system with black men as, as the servants. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, and I guess that we should first, you know, also say congratulations, uh, for this year's Giller prize. Uh, it must've been, you know, uh, a real, uh, I think that you said that you were, you were very surprised when, when you heard that, uh, that, that had come through for you. Tell us about first, I guess, just tell us about the, uh, the, the process. I, I know that the book took a long time to write, mm-hmm. uh, but the process of, of such a prestigious award, uh, you've had several books published in the past, uh, tell us about the, the Giller, uh, the Giller award. Well, yeah, I was. I was beyond shocked, honestly, because I've been, I, I was looking at my CV the other day for some other, some other unrelated reason. And I realized that I published my very first poem in 1990 and my first book came out, I think in 1995. So I've been writing for a, a while and, you know, I'd kind of reconciled myself to the idea that I wasn't necessarily going to be successful in that conventional sense. I wasn't going to be a big award winner. I was just going to do my work and try to do the best I possibly could. And my um, novel Monoceros, which came out in 2011, was long listed for Giller. And that was kind of a nice tick, but, you know, or kind of a nice blip rather, but it just sort of died away. And so I was, you know, when I, when this book was nominated, was long listed, I thought, oh, that's great. It's going to be like Monoceros, which is I have this little blip, I'll get a couple emails, and then I, it will disappear and nobody will remember it. And then when it was shortlisted, it suddenly became a whole other realm of 
something I had never seen before because suddenly this giant Giller machinery, <laughs> media machinery came into play and, um, you know, me and, and the other four short shortlisted authors were suddenly on this cross Canada tour uh, reading to audiences. I have never seen audiences this big. I have never had this many book sales in my life. It was astonishing. And then when I, you know, at the gala, I figured I wouldn't win because, you know, I had a one out of five chance, but all the other authors were better known than me. And, you know, it had been a great ride. And then when they announced my name, I, I, I actually just wanted to cry, <laughs> you know, just um, and not because I was sad, just because out of shock and what is going on. So it has been a ride. It has been absolutely thrilling. It has been terrifying. I'm still, you know, my book isn't even three months old and I've never had this amount of attention. And I, I know that probably a year from now I'll be yesterday's news and I'm, I'll be fine with that. <laughs> Because it's 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 a lot, you know. Writers are introverts. We're not necessarily extroverted people. We're not necessarily made for doing a lot of publicity. So it'll be, you know, I'm 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 enjoying this ride while I can, and and then you know I have I got to work on the next book. So and this that's that's the hard part is always starting the next book. So that's absolutely amazing though and I don't think you'll be yesterday's news I think you'll be on lots of syllabuses at classes and all sorts of things so people will probably keep reading it for years and years um and be, stay interested in your work so can you tell us a little bit more about your book and just the, the narrative of it yeah sure so basically the elevator pitch for the book is that it's set in the summer of 1929 it revolves around a sleeping car porter named R.T. Baxter who is an extra, so it's not his usual line, but he's been assigned to do the Trans-Canada line uh, from Montreal to Vancouver, which at the time um, was the fastest train across the continent. So this was an express line. And I've heard different, you know, different numbers, but the source I have uh, says that the trip took 88 hours and 45 minutes. Other you know, other sources say 90 plus, whatever, but it was fast. It was the fastest for the time. And uh, on this particular trip, uh, the train is stuck in the Rocky Mountains because there's a mudslide up ahead on the tracks. And so the train is stuck for an additional 45 hours. And so Baxter, who is already suffering from chronic sleep deprivation, starts hallucinating. Uh, and the passengers on the train start, you know, because of their growing restlessness, it gets more and more unruly. And the other thing to know is that, you know, not only is Baxter a black man, which is traditional for porters of the time, which was traditional for porters at the time, but he's also a closeted gay man. And on the trip, he finds a what they used to call a French postcard. So it's an erotic postcard um, that has an image of two naked men entwined in an amorous embrace. And so he gets stuck in the Rocky Mountains, the passengers are stuck in the Rocky Mountains, and people are getting restless and itchy and adventures ensue. So that's basically it. <laughs> Baxter's not only working as a sleeping car porter, not only his regular job, but he's also trying to be something else, which is also a really interesting part of the story, I thought. Tell us kind of where Baxter wants to be as opposed to where he is. 
That's right. That's right. So Baxter also wants to be a dentist and he's saving up his tips. He's saving up his wages to go to dentistry school at McGill. So that's, you know, that's the other part of his life. And it's the one thing or one of the things that's saving him from the drudgery of the job. He's also a, a I guess what we call nowadays, maybe a sci-fi fantasy nerd. And so he's um, reading along the way a book called The Scarab from Jupiter, which serves as a kind of parallel to uh, the journey he's going through on this train. How much how much thought did you have to put into the dentistry angle? Because you talk about malocclusions and a whole bunch of different kind of dentistry stuff. Did you have, was, was there, we're up, we're kind of getting down a rabbit hole here, but um, <laughs> we'll go down it very far. But that kind of, you know, that kind of thing there, how much, you know, how much work did you have to put into that, that part of it? I was so scared about that um, because I didn't want to get it wrong. At the same time, I remembered that, well, it's not as if, Baxter is a dentist, so he's not going to know it perfectly. So what I ended up doing was I um, found through the Hathi Trust, I found some digitized dentistry textbooks from 1917, 1920, and I just read through those. And it was so fun because on one hand, there are so many elements that are the same, you know, so the names of the teeth are the same, the, the anatomy has got the same naming, but the techniques are way way different from now you know so I remember reading in particular and I've talked about this before in other interviews but I find it fascinating there was um uh, there was a section in one dentistry textbook where they were talking about doing dentistry on children and cavities or something like that and literally the instructions were the directions were for one adult to have the child between their knees you know, to hold the child while the dentist came and would, you know, basically go with the pliers and tug the teeth out of the kid's head. So it was, it was pretty wild. But then I also was really lucky because I was, uh, part of my process for this book was talking with Cheryl Fogo, who's a local historian, um, you know, uh, fiction writer, uh, memoirist, who in a past life was a dental, I think she was a dental hygienist. And so I asked her to read an early version of the manuscript and she commented on the dentistry components and had lots of great advice. That was, that was great. Um, and I, and the dentistry actually started accidentally. I, I, you know, originally Baxter was not reading a novel called the scarab from Jupiter. He was reading Dracula and I had a, you know, I was fiddling around with a scene where he was trying to figure out how the fangs worked on a vampire and I thought, you know, this is, I should just take this a little bit further. And so he ends up becoming fascinated by everyone's teeth, not just vampire's teeth. And it works as a really great metaphor for, you know, this, the, the way in which he needs to know characters or he needs to know passengers. He needs to read passengers. He needs to be able to anticipate their every need. And so he reads them from the outside, you know, by, just looking at their clothes, the way they carry themselves, their possessions, their shoes, the state of their shoes. But he also can read them through the state of their mouths. So the conditions of their teeth, you know, the the color of their teeth. And it also is a, a nice distraction for him from the grossness of the job. And I have a scene in there where a passenger is yelling at him and he kind of dissociates by, um, you know, just looking at the passenger's teeth as the as the passenger is yelling at him. 
That's pretty, that's yeah, super interesting. And we actually, uh, there are two episodes, uh, in this month that we'll, that we'll release with Cheryl Fogo. That's, uh, oh. that talks about black history in Western Canada and more specifically on the prairie and, and connections to here at Heritage Park. So interesting that, uh, we're all kind of intersecting in, uh, in this, uh, in the, in the, through these podcasts. Uh, Suzette, I wonder what what your comment would be on the the legacy of sleeping car porters in in Canadian, I guess history in the in the in the black movement, the uh, black labor movement, but also in, in in the rail in the history of Canada's railway. Well, <clears throat> I would say that you know the railway, the railway was a new problem. You know this way better than I do, <clears throat> but I know that the railway was one of the key it's it's a major narrative in Canada's history in the creation of this place we know as Canada right it's it was the the instrument with which you know Canada was united as a single entity like just because people could travel across Canada and so you of course have you know the the people who uh, designed and built or designed and or had the idea of having the railway, but you also had the people who worked on the railway, like laying down the tracks, you know, so the Chinese workers who were brought in to, to, to lay down the tracks, for example, and who gave up their lives often in many cases. And the sleeping car porters, I think are also part of that narrative as well. You know, they are, mm, I guess, uh, you know, there were numerous <clears throat> numerous black communities that were established because specifically because of the railway, because of the different, you know, the different um, major stations along the way, like Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, you know, all of those places. Um, I would say that there isn't one Canadian history, but many Canadian histories that all come together to make that Canadian history. And so the sleeping car porters are part of that, that black history and the building of black people in in Canada um I I'm not being very articulate about this I guess because it's 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 difficult to try to emphasize just how important you know the little people are I guess in building a history it's not just the politicians um it's not just the you know, the obvious leaders, it's not the people who appear in the official historical records, it's the, it's the communities, the smaller communities, the smaller cultures, the subcultures. And I think the sleeping car porters, interestingly, you know, there are many different black communities, black, black people in Canada are not one monolithic community, there are many different kinds. And the sleeping car porters, I think, kind of unified all of those communities in a way. And I'm very proud of I'm very proud of people like Oscar Peterson, you know, whose father got him a piano and encouraged him to play the piano and he became a world famous pianist. I'm really proud of, you know, Rufus Rockhead, who established Rockhead's Paradise in Montreal based on money he made smuggling booze as a sleeping car porter. Um, I'm really proud of people like Stanley G. Grizzle. I, 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 I think sometimes, you know, I wonder if I would necessarily be here in Canada if it wasn't for sleeping car porters helping to establish black presence and, and, and black communities. So, yeah. 
Well, we're really happy that you are here. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Well, this has been uh, super interesting. Uh, I'm sure Kasai, you would agree that uh, it's um, it's really interesting, and I, and I love the the subculture and and the 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 different people who came together to to build you know, what we know now and in their place in the railway and that kind of thing. So really happy that you could join us today, Suzette. I'm really happy that I have been able to join you. I worked at Heritage Park when I was younger. I was a cleaner in the exhibit. So I had a great time there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When I was in my, I think I was probably 18 or 19. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck on your meteoric rise to fame here. And uh, (laughs) thank you. And have a really great Black History Month. Yes, you too. Thank you. All right. Thank you.